sermon text for this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. I invite you to please turn there in your copy of Scripture as I read the text. Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In last week's passage, we noted the Apostle Paul's desire, fervent desire, to become more and more like Christ. He said about sanctification, he said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, we can hear in these words of Paul, his passion in seeking after the things of God. Christ Jesus made Paul his own. Jesus had called him from darkness to light, and now Paul could never look back. He said there in verse 13 of Philippians 3, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And we noted there that the images of a marathon runner, a very intense marathon runner who is using every muscle, every calorie, every breath in order to get to that finish line, in order to persevere to the end, in order to win the race. You know, some of us might hear that and think, wow, that kind of passionate pursuit of godliness is not for me. Uh, It's reserved for Christian elites, reserved for guys like Paul. It's reserved for pastors and elders and deacons. You know, it's not for regular uh, Christians like me. But notice, loved ones, what Paul says at the beginning of our text this morning in verse 17. He says, their brothers join in imitating me. That word brothers is an appeal to the whole church in Philippi. It's an appeal to all Christians to run the race of faith with perseverance to the end. That we are all to join Paul's tenacity and Paul's perseverance, that attitude that he has, that one thing that he does, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead and pressing onward and upward. And so uh, to help us run in this way, Paul, he gives us here a warning. He says in the text, the warning is, do not follow the example of those who are enemies of the cross. We see it in verse 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, writes Paul, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. As you look at verses 18 and 19, the natural question that arises is, who are the enemies of the cross that Paul is referring to here? Well, Paul is referring to those who call themselves Christians, but who live uh, sinful lifestyles without repentance. They are morally depraved. They break God's commandments, and they don't repent of their sinfulness. You might recall that in chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, Paul warned the Philippians about the Judaizers, those who preached legalism. They preached salvation by works. They preached uh, the need for Christians to keep the law in order uh, to be saved in the ceremonial law that we know that Jesus had fulfilled. Well, Paul now warns of another group who might show up in Philippi. And this group is marked, we see, not by legalism, but it's marked by uh, license, uh, lawlessness. They called themselves Christians, but we see that they lived lives of uh, sinful indulgence. These uh, false teachers, they had already infected the church in Corinth. Um, One of the central teachings was that the cross of Christ, this is what they taught, the cross of Christ was too shameful and too humiliating to tell others about it. And this is why Paul describes them here as enemies of the cross. They wanted to emphasize Jesus' power. They, They wanted to talk at length about Jesus' authority and his divinity, but you know, They wanted to ignore, maybe even forget, uh, about Jesus' crucifixion. We know about Jesus' crucifixion, don't we, from Scripture. And we know from historical works that crucifixion was a horrible way to die in the Roman Empire. And it was reserved for the worst criminals. In fact, Roman citizens could not be crucified because it was such a painful in such a shameful way to die. And so these false teachers, you know what, they, they wanted to downplay the fact that Jesus had been crucified. Kind of wanted to ignore that fact. And, you know, it's the same temptation that any of us face today. We live in a very advanced technological era. We have the Google, right? We have the internets. We are becoming more and more, seems like, advanced and sophisticated, Uh, who in this age, in our modern age, wants to hear about a suffering, bloody, crucified Savior? See, the temptation for some Christians is to downplay the fact that, yes, Jesus had been crucified. He died in order to atone for our sins. And Paul knew this temptation. And we see that rather than keeping quiet about the cross, Paul instead preached it all the more loudly and boldly. Paul famously called the cross foolishness, we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. And so for some to claim to be a Christian's, And then to say that they are ashamed of the cross, uh, to say that they do not want to consider Christ crucified, you know, that's actually to reveal that they are not true Christians. 
Because true faith, loved ones, true faith is revealed in our willingness to follow after our Savior, to follow after Jesus. It's revealed in our willingness to also deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him, not to be ashamed of him and not to be ashamed of what he did to accomplish our salvation. And so Paul warns the Philippians about those who say that they are believers and yet don't deny themselves but instead, we see they gratify the sinful desires of their flesh. They do not deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow Jesus. But instead, as Paul says here, they revel in their sin. We see in the following verses of these so-called believers, he says their end is destruction. He is uh, speaking here of their eternal destruction that any and all who reject the cross reject the only way of salvation, and therefore their end is to suffer God's wrath. Paul also describes these so-called believers. He says their God is their belly. And what he's speaking about there is that these uh, so-called Christians, they serve their physical appetites. They are slaves to their physical appetites, uh, be it uh, a sexual appetite or with regard to food and drink, you know what they are? Is they're ruled by their passions. They consume whatever they desire. They give no thought to what pleases God and what God says in his word. Their primary goal is to seek out pleasure and to fulfill their own desires. They, Paul says next, they glory in their shame. And Paul here describes the fact that these people... Uh, revel in their sinfulness. You know, rather than being embarrassed about their sinful behavior, rather than feeling shame and, and being convicted by it, we see instead that they are proud and they boast in their depravity, the way that Paul says here that they glory in their shame. And, you know, when we think about that in, in our contemporary setting, what this looks like, uh, many of us are familiar with uh, images uh, that we see on TV of like the gay pride parades, right? That's an example of people who glory in their shame. Uh, or think of a Ku Klux Klan or a neo-Nazi march, public demonstration. There are people there who are glorying in their shame. Consider also uh, pro-choice rallies with people there cheering on political candidates who support abortion. And, you know, people are getting excited when pro-abortion laws are passed and, and they tweet about them and they clap about them and they get really excited about these things and they cheer these politicians on. Loved ones, these are all examples of people glorying in their shame. And the sad thing, thing is, in that, is that in each of these examples, there are those who call themselves Christians among those crowds and those people. Paul says that they are setting their minds on earthly things. This is in contrast to the mind that is set on the things of God. The things of God are those virtues and goals and joys that are eternal and that praise and that glorify God. And Paul says, you know, we must not follow the example of such enemies of the cross, loved ones. They reject the cross. See, they reject the idea of self-denial. They are not true 
believers. But we, Paul says, we must instead see that the cross remains central to our faith. We must keep it central to our faith. Why is the cross so important to true Christians, loved ones? Why is it so central to our faith? Well, it's because we know that through the cross, God has turned his enemies into his children. That each and every one of us were born enemies of God. And what was it in history that brought about our relationship and our reconciliation with God? That changed us from the status of of his enemies to his children? What was it? It was the cross. It is that point in history when while we were still sinners, Paul writes in Romans 5, Christ died for us. We read in the scriptures that it was on the cross that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins against God. He bore God's wrath for our sins. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, here he's speaking of the cross of Christ, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so, loved ones, you know, understanding what Jesus' death on the cross has brought about, it's brought about our reconciliation, our redemption. What we do now is we can rejoice in the cross. See, we see it as the power and as the wisdom of God, where the world looks on and sees only horror and pain and, and death. The world rejects it as foolishness. We see the beauty of the cross. And that's why in our church, you know, we, we sing hymns like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And hymns like, uh, Jesus, keep me near the cross. We don't want to forget it. We want to remember it and call it to mind daily. In fact, one stanza from that second hymn that I mentioned reads, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its seams before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. Loved ones, did you hear that prayer? It's, Lord, bring the cross to my mind daily to consider what you have accomplished through it and how it affects my daily life. And so as Christians, we must never follow the examples of those who are enemies of the cross, those who glory in their shame. Paul, instead, exhorts us here to stand firm in our faith. And the way that we do that is by, he says, following the example set by true believers, not following the example of false believers, but instead following the example set by true believers. And we see that in verse 17. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, when we uh, hear Paul say, join in imitating me, uh, you know, some of us might get a little bit un uncomfortable, perhaps, with that idea. You might think, uh, you know, doesn't Paul seem a little too self-confident here? To be able to say something like this, um, 
you know, exhorting us to pattern our lives according to his life, it might seem a little bit uh, arrogant of him, right? He might seem a little bit too sure of himself. But, loved ones, I want to remind us that Paul was well aware of his shortcomings as a Christian. We read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 last week, where Paul admitted, he said, you know, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul there declared, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfectly sanctified. I'm not without sin. And so what we see him doing instead is not saying, uh, follow me blindly, but his emphasis to the churches was on following him as he followed Christ, as Paul the apostle patterned his life and his teaching upon Christ. Paul said, follow me in that way. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And when we think about this idea of, of imitating others, uh, you know, we can readily admit that we all imitate the behavior of others around us to some degree or another. We are all imitating uh, people that we know in some, to some degree or another. And sometimes, you know, we're conscious of our imitation. Uh, maybe you children have uh, somebody in your minds. You say, when I grow up, I want to be like that person. Or you might even have a poster up on your wall. And, and you look at that poster and you say, I want to be like that person when I grow up. And so you're consciously aware that you're imitating that person in your life. But, you know, sometimes we imitate others unconsciously. We pattern our lives after others without even realizing that we're doing so. Um, you know, getting married uh, really brought this to light for me. Uh, there were times early in our marriage when, where uh, Donna would uh, see me doing something and she would ask, why do you do that? Right? And I'd reply, uh, I don't know. Uh, isn't that how everyone does it? And she'd say, no, that's not how everyone does it. And, and then I'd realize, oh, it's because it's what I saw my parents doing. And I'd realize, you know, I'd lived with them for all my life. And in living with them, I picked up on their habits and their mannerisms, often without even realizing it. And so, you know, we all imitate the behavior of others to some degree or another. And Paul is, is simply saying here, we must imitate those who are worthy of imitation. We are to seek out godly, faithful Christians and to pattern our lives after theirs. Uh, to seek out godly, faithful Christians who are themselves patterning their lives after Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now, as Christians, we have the Bible, and God has given us the Bible to guide us and to instruct us, but in God's wonderful design and in his wonderful purpose, he has also given one another, right? God given us one another. He's given us human illustrations of Christian living, as imperfect as they may be, but God uses us as we are living in community together as a church to train us up in godliness. And this is one of the great blessings of our church. We think about the fact that our membership is composed of saints of differing ages and of differing life experiences. And so when we come 
in worship and in fellowship together, and we are a community of believers, what we are doing is we are learning from one another. Right? We are sharpening one another. That's why even our midweek Bible studies are multi-generational. Our prayer breakfasts and church events um, our lunch bunch today, I encourage you at some point just to look around the tables and to see children sitting with adults and adults sitting with those who are uh, older, right? Multi-generational. We are all there together, young and old, mature and immature, weak and strong, in community together. This is the very pattern that Paul instructed Titus to establish in the church. I want to read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And listen to, to how Paul describes the importance of, of many generations and uh, different, we might say, different Christians working together to sharpen one another. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Notice the pattern, the importance of younger Christians learning from older Christians. How? By imitating their behavior, by imitating their way of life, that the older, older women should train the younger women in the church. The older man should set an example for the younger man. So I want to ask you this morning, who are you imitating? Who most influences you? Is it a godly person? Is that person that you want to be like, that that is directly influencing you, is that person worthy of imitation? Are they following after Christ? You know, if they are not, then do not follow them. Loved ones, we need to be wise about who we choose to imitate. So Paul says we must follow the godly examples set by true believers, and we must thirdly live as uh, citizens of heaven, we see here. But our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We see in these verses that Paul clearly tells us who we are. We are citizens of heaven, that this world in its current condition, this world as it is now, in its state of, of being cursed and in its fallenness, is not our home. 
The Bible says that we are pilgrims on a journey to the promised land. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, when he speaks about believers in the Old Covenant, he writes in chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith. They died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now that word stranger describes somebody who is, a, who is an outsider, somebody who doesn't fit in, who doesn't belong. The writer of Hebrews says, you know, as Christians in this fallen world, in this age, uh, we're strangers. And then the word exile is very similar to it. The word exile describes someone who is staying for a while in a strange or foreign place. It used to be known as a sojourner. We don't really use that word anymore. But this term was often used to describe a person who stayed temporarily in a, like a hotel or, or lodging place on the way to his final destination. Now, Keith Matheson, who's one of the writers for Table Talk magazine, he explains it this way. He says, Jesus Christ is our king, and we are first and foremost citizens of his kingdom. Our relationship to the lands in which we were born and now live is somewhat comparable to that of an ambassador who lives in a foreign land. Yes, we may have love for the land in which we temporarily reside and we are to work for its good and its benefits, but there is always a homesickness. We long to see our true king. Loved ones, the assurance that we find throughout the Bible is that we will see our true king. As we see in, in the verses before us, Christ will return. He will return to judge both the living and the dead. And at his return, he will make all things new. The creation that now groans will be freed from its bondage to sin and decay. And then you and I will inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. We will inhabit a planet and a universe that is no longer corrupted by sin, but it will finally be on earth as it is now in heaven. We read in the Bible that in the age to come, we will not only be freed from the penalty and power of sin, as we are freed now, but we will be freed also from the presence of sin. We read the assurance in Scripture that there will come a day on which Christ will return and that all those who died in faith will be raised up. You and I will be raised up or we will be raised up in perfected souls with perfected bodies and we will inhabit a, a perfected new creation. This is our future, loved ones. Perfected souls and perfected bodies, we will be like Christ. We will be with Christ in glory forever. The Apostle John, speaking about that wonderful day, he writes in Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Husbands, we are called to live daily in light of this future reality. See, this future reality that has already begun in our souls in regeneration, this future reality that involves the fact that this present world as it is now is not our final home. We await a renewed creation. And when that kingdom is established, loved ones, we will be welcomed in. That is the wonderful news of the gospel. We will be welcomed into that kingdom because we are already citizens of it right now. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ, who is our risen and ascended Lord. And we thank you for the assurance that where he is, we will be also, that he is preparing a place for us in glory. We pray that you would grant us heavenly-mindedness, that you would cause us not to conform to the pattern of this age, but to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. Lord, we thank you also for this food that you have provided for us this afternoon and for all those who worked to prepare it for us. We pray that you would bless our meal and our fellowship together. And Lord, as we uh, leave this place, we pray that your word would abide in us. We ask that you would write your word upon our hearts and help us to call it to mind daily so that we might bear fruit that lasts for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.